people, and I'm really, really honored to have them here today to have a really uh, nice freewheeling discussion on a couple of central questions. We're going to focus on two primary questions today because it's a big panel. Um, and so we're going to spend some, some good time with the, each question really stretching into it, uh, kind of an open format. We'll start with a sequence where people are going to go in a row with answering questions, but then we will also have people interjecting as desired or needed because, hey, we can all respect each other and we're all teachers here. So uh, let's, get a, uh, let's get this going. Again, thank you for coming. Um, to just introduce some of the individuals as you see them here, we have Sarah Orton, born in Oakland. 30 years old and has been an educator, advocate, and a an activist in interpersonal violence and social justice movements for over seven years. She has a background in sexual health and human sexuality studies and believes that sexual violence is a public health and human rights issue. Ruth Crossman is a writer and educator who currently lives in Oakland. Her political writings have appeared on the website Poets Read in the News and the anthology 11.9, The Downfall of American Democracy. Frankie Mastrangelo is an educator living in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you for coming all the way out. She's working on a PhD dissertation that looks at how neoliberal buzzwords like innovation circulate through and influence various cultures and communities. And around here, we all know that the words like innovation and disruption can mean some very heavy socioeconomic things. Uh, Lindsay McCleary spent his formative years knee deep in SoCal's survivor heavy punk and hardcore scene and had the peculiar distinction of being the most heavily tattooed person in the University of California's Department of Equity and Inclusion. He worked in education and educational outreach for well over a decade, including stints as an educator or as a lecturer at Southern California and Stanford and as a classroom teacher in Oakland and Richmond, California public schools. Michelle Cruz Gonzalez played drums and wrote lyrics for three bands during the 1980s and 1990s, and still is writing and playing in bands. Uh, Bitch Fight, Spit Boy, and Instant Girl. All phenomenal, all worth seeking out as much material as you can, even if the prices are stupid on Discogs. <laughs> writing has been published in <laughs> There we go, perfect. Go straight to the source. Uh, her writing has been published in anthologies, literary journals, and Hip Mama magazine. Uh, she teaches English and creative writing in Las Positas College and lives with her husband, son, and their three Mexican dogs in Oakland, California. And also, don't forget to check out her book, which is incredible. Uh, Alice Bagg is a singer, songwriter, musician, author, artist, educator, and feminist. And again, thank you for coming all the way out here yeah. from Los Angeles. <laughs> Alice was the lead singer. I didn't pay attention and send any information. <laughs> well, sorry. Good thing you have a lot of bio online. <laughs> Fortunately, Alice Bag is not too difficult to discern and some good facts. <laughs> Alice is the lead singer and co-founder of The Bags, one of the first bands to form during the initial wave of punk in Los Angeles, and wrote the acclaimed books Violence Girl and Pipe Bomb for the Soul, uh, both of which were about her decades of life as a punk and classroom teacher. And I definitely recommend Pipe Bomb for the Soul, by the way. It's a phenomenal book about her, a lot of, mostly focused on her teaching in Nicaragua during the uh, during the 1980s, um, and we have down here Miriam Klein-Stahl or Jessica Mills. Jessica Mills, sorry, I'm getting blind as it goes further down. Jessica Mills is a, who has also come all the way out here from Albuquerque. Yes, is a singer, songwriter, musician, artist, educator, and feminist. Uh, no, sorry, played drums and all those things too. Played drums and wrote lyrics for three bands during the 1980s. Uh, and a punk lover who's played sax and bass for quite a few well-known <laughs> bands from the early 90s into the present. 
She is a former Maximum Marketable columnist and author of the punk parenting memoir guide, My Mother Wears Combat Boots, which has been indispensable in our household. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and current MRR book reviewer, intrepid copy editor for this volume, uh, which by the way, in case you didn't know, this is the volume that came out with all these books in it. Uh, and uh, an English instructor at Central New Mexico Community College in Albuquerque and creates phenomenal curriculum, some of which I've been using, trying to use in my department at the high school, including stuff that is really, really good about source, uh, about checking out your sources and making sure that they're actually verifiable and worth using. So thank you. And thank you for coming all the way out. My pleasure. Sorry about, the, sorry about the composite bio there for a second. It was got a little complicated. <laughs> Miriam Klein-Stahl. Last but definitely not least is a Bay Area, Bay Area artist, educator, and activist, and during the New, and the New York Times best-selling author of Rad American Women A to Z and Rad Women Worldwide. In addition to her work in printmaking, drawing, sculpture, paper cut, and public art, she is also the co-founder of the Arts and Humanities Academy at Berkeley High School, where she has taught since 1995 and where I frequently was her substitute for uh, over a large chunk of the last few years. <laughs> so I got my own classroom. So thank you for coming. <laughs> so thank you all for being here. Um, again, we're gonna focus on a couple of primary questions. I'm John Mink, I edited this thing and uh, I'm really happy to be here. I'm a classroom teacher, um, currently teaching at a high school in the East Bay of taught adult education, playing bands, uh, right in maximum rock and roll, which this started as a column in. And so, thank you all for being here. Um, so let's start with some questions, and let's again go in sequence. We'll start on this end of the table first, and then on that end of the table for the next question. And so the first question is, what does it look like, practice-wise, to be an openly radical teacher in the classroom, given the continued prevalence of teaching models that promote the idea that a teacher should be, quote-unquote, unbiased and opaque about their beliefs? Sarah, you want to start? Sure, I didn't see where you pointed. That's okay. <laughs> um, so since I uh, historically have taught um, sexual violence prevention, education, and sexual health, uh, my content is, is inherently radical, right? And uh, when I spent time working um, with different schools and different school districts trying to kind of push this curriculum and get inside of the classroom, that was sort of at the forefront of all of those discussions. Um, but I think, a misconception that I encountered quite a bit um, was that often what schools or, or classrooms wanted us to focus on were what we call risk reduction rather than primary prevention. So risk reduction, for example, includes things like self-defense, how to protect yourself, how to say no, how to stay safe. Uh, but what we know from, I mean, from years of experience and in mountains of evidence is that these methods are ineffective we know that um, we have to focus on the social norms change piece if we're going to prevent sexual violence, which is also a radical agenda. Um, we know that sexual violence doesn't occur because you're walking down a dark alley at night or because of what you're wearing. We know that what puts folks at risk for sexual violence is um, holding historically marginalized and oppressed identities. And so how do you reconcile that in front of the classroom and how do you do that with curriculum, um, I think is, is a big part of the challenge. Uh, and I think so much about what's radical about the education that, that so many of us are doing is that it's really an opportunity um, 
Well, one, how can you totally uncouple yourself from your own lived experiences, right? Whether we want to or not, we're showing up. Um, we're showing up how we are uh, with our own identities, with our own um, experiences of being both agents and targets of oppression, um, of our own experiences with violence or the experiences of violence um, experienced by those close to us. And, and quite frankly, why would we want to um, separate ourselves from those experiences? So I think. What, where there's an opportunity for really radical practice is really drawing on the knowledge and lived experience of, of what's in the room, whether you're working uh, with kids in middle school or, or young college age, everybody is showing up as their whole selves too, I mean, in, a, in an ideal situation. And so really harnessing the knowledge and the power that's in the room and reflecting that back to engage in radical discourse about what those social norms change pieces look like and, and what we're needing to challenge to, to move forward in sexual violence prevention. Um, So for me, it really is about ethos rather than pathos. Uh, I come from a, a really different uh, place as an ESL instructor, um, and uh, I think it's really possible. You can you can be an outspoken radical in your ideology um, and still be teaching in a way that's really top down and authoritarian mm. if all you are doing is um, expounding on your own yep. beliefs. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I um, my, my chapter in the book is, is based on the writing of Paulo Freire, uh, who is a huge inspiration. And what uh, what I love about Freire is that um, he, was, uh, he was a Brazilian activist, he was a Marxist, and um, he was kind of sent down in the 60s to work um, with uh, peasants and farm workers who the Communist Party in the cities uh, wanted to radicalize. Um, and so, but the thing was that they uh, were illiterate. Um, and so the, the people that he was working with, the, the assumption was like, okay, well first we're gonna teach them how to read. Um, <laughs> and then like once they know how to read, then we can teach them about Marxism. And then once they understand Marxism, then they can be part of the struggle with us. Um, and uh, he, you know, so in uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which became the basis of my chapter, he, uh, he's like, there's no way that you can separate your methodology of teaching from the concept that you're teaching. And if you're, if you're trying to teach these individuals liberation, you cannot start from a position of hierarchy with them. Um, you, you have to be treating them as equals. Um, and uh, I teach, uh, and that's something that I think is really relevant to the work that I do as an ESL instructor because I um, work with students who have emerging literacies. I work with students who have a very low English proficiency. Um, and I've had conversations with other faculty members about, um, there, there's, there's an echo of like, well, you know, like first they have to have some vocabulary in English um, and eventually, like maybe at a higher level, we can get into some critical thinking. Um, but you know, they're they're not ready for it yet because they don't have English yet. Um, and in um, <laughs> yeah, or like the 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 kind of material that um, that gets focused on can be really basic. But the the thing is that um, any lesson uh, 
you can almost immediately get into some um, some some very critical issues if you're doing a, you know like if you're doing a lesson about trying to find an apartment if you're doing a lesson about nutrition if you're doing a lesson about the community um, and uh, to kind of echo some of what Sarah said about drawing on the lived experience of my students uh, what I did in my chapter the, the way that I approached this uh, with my with my lesson plan um, that became the basis of my chapter is I, I began with this concept of a generative image, um, which is this method that Furry uses where he uh, has everyone look at a picture and kind of reflect onto it what they think. Um, and I wanted to do a lesson with my students about their interactions with the police. Um, and uh, I could have, you know, this was right after the election, I, I could have done what is unfortunately now the kind of standard lesson which is like this is what you do when when ice comes to the door like these are the little cards that are bilingual and like this is what you say and these are your rights um and me as you know like a, a white woman just like throwing that on my level one students um that could have been radical contact but that that's not uh that's not a radical teaching style there are a lot of embedded assumptions in that and so what i did instead was i opened up um this question that was around what people's experiences were with the police, but in a very open-ended way. I showed them this picture of this guy getting arrested. And um, my question was just like, what's going on in this picture and why? And kind of let my students decide what they wanted to talk about. And what it turned out they actually wanted to talk about was domestic violence and drug abuse in their community. Um, I, I was expecting it to go into this direction of, of ice raids and like being profiled and the question that actually came out of it was basically like what do you do if you are worried about your neighbor like what do you do if you hear something that you think is domestic violence and um, you feel like you need to call the police and then also um, what are resources that people who are having mental health issues um, and struggling with drug abuse can deal with um, and those were those were not what I would have assumed um, the students wanted to talk about, but that was what came out of their lived experience. And um, what I did was I kind of acted as a facilitator, um, where I took their ideas and their concerns and their lived experience and created this structure um, with them, where we were talking, we were using language structures together and talking about um, solutions and instead of being someone who is trying to impart knowledge to them um, kind of the banking model where I'm like putting information in their in their head I was um, creating a space where they could help each other <coughs> solve problems um, yeah so that's that's basically my answer yeah so the, the comments thus far have made me think a lot about you know the the relationship between lived experience to this question that you know we're interrogating around what it means to be unbiased, and I think that just the term unbiased deserves a little bit of probing and unpacking and thinking about you know in teaching in a context. So I teach in um, a feminist studies context and we always see the personal and the political as being fundamentally intertwined. So when you ask someone to be unbiased, you're essentially asking them to divorce their lived experience, to divorce their identity, to divorce their relationships to systems of privilege and oppression from the content that they're engaging in. 
Um, and when we think about even the connection between the notion of being unbiased and you know the rhetoric around objectivity and whatnot in the media, we think about you know this sort of notion around a default perspective of being completely neutral, of you know having no you know sort of investment in the content that you know you're you're delivering, that you're able to just take a complete step back and um, you know speak from this purely neutral perspective and I think that that notion is often you know it comes up in a lot of disciplines in academic disciplines so even thinking about you know the notion of like scientific objectivity and thinking about you know how the the notion of a standpoint being objective comes up in you know, a lot of different contexts. But we realize that often the notion of objectivity, it assumes a default white male perspective. So that in and of itself really needs to be interrogated and in thinking about why do we see this sort of neutrality or objectivity as just being, you know, the voices of white men and sort of defaulting to that. Um, so also, you know, in thinking about the the goal of being unbiased and thinking about you know um, teaching evaluations in you know teaching in uh, college classes and whatnot um, you know there's this pressure to get good teaching evaluations and then often people will note the ways that um, being applauded for being unbiased comes up and it always makes me think of you know what what does that actually look like when students perceive you as being unbiased and I think about how it has even come up among my students that would identify as politically radical and I think that sometimes the notion of being unbiased can be um, you know sort of ideologically intertwined with the notion of you know, just being able to effectively facilitate and get everyone's perspectives in the room engaged. And there's really a fundamental difference, and I think those things need to be parsed out. There's a difference between effective facilitation, where you're making sure um, everybody is being positioned as experts of their own lived experience, that everyone, you know, recognizes that they have something valuable to bring to the table, and, you know, hearing those perspectives. And instead, you know, I think that sometimes people can perceive that as this weird sort of elusive notion of being unbiased. And in thinking about, you know, the notion of what does it look like to, you know, connect the personal and the political in conversations and how key that is in terms of, you know, evolving our perspectives around, you know, how we're oriented to the world, how we see ourselves in relation to systems of privilege and oppression. You know, we're asking students in those contexts where radical politics comes up to really locate themselves in relation to the material. And I think that the notion of having some sort of objective, unbiased perspective is just fundamentally flawed in that way because you're asking students to really unpack what it looks like for them to be a person in the world, to be a person that, you know, because of their relationships to systems of privilege and oppression can be complicit in, you know, reinforcing those things, but not necessarily being cognizant of that. Um, so I think that, you know, when you're talking about things like, you know, unpacking white fragility, um, you know, thinking about uh, various like racialized differences when it comes to interacting with the police, 
just, you can't approach those conversations thinking about you're going to completely divorce the person from the dialogue. So, so yeah, a lot of feelings just about the word unbiased. I forgot what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it look like to be an openly radical teacher in the classroom, given the con continued prevalence of teaching models that promote the idea that a teacher should be, and they, I put this very strongly in air quotes, unbiased yeah. and mm -hmm. opaque about their own beliefs? So I don't actually know if I engaged with that when I was an, uh, like an educator. Yeah. I think what happened with me and the point where I became really, really radical was when I was given about 200 kids from Title I schools. Title I, if, if people, how many people know what Title I means? Right, cool, I'll, I'll say what Title I is. Title I basically means that most of the kids at that school are eligible for free and reduced lunch, which is to say federal funding has come into the picture at those schools, right? So I get, get 200 kids from these schools, quite a few from like East Oakland, and Richmond, so like Richmond High, Kennedy, which if people don't know, there's a place in Richmond called the Iron Triangle. The Iron Triangle is where a lot of murders occur. And a lot of my students were from this area that I was working with were from this area called the Iron Triangle. Anyways, I'm given these, these students and I'm, that I was told like, come up with good academic interventions to help these students do better in school. And I started going and actually trying to figure out what was going on with the students academically. Like I, I started talking to them. Uh, I started noticing a lot of my students saying like, yeah, well, it was really hard for me to concentrate because, you know, my cousin had just been shot, right? And I was like, yeah, that's, that's pretty legitimate, right? That's a good reason to not do well on a, on a test. That's a good reason to have a difficult time with that class. I don't, and I've heard, also heard students like, well, me and this teacher just didn't get along, right? We got into this, this pattern where I would just think that teacher made me so angry. And I said, okay, I can understand. Go talk with the teacher. Teach, find out the teacher's got this like attitude of, you have to sit at your desk and be quiet when I say be quiet, right? And that can be very, very difficult for students who are used to that kind of control being used to put them in danger, to harm them, where getting out of a bad situation is really important to them, that's really difficult to have a teacher to, who tells you to do that. Um, and this challenged my idea about what pedagogy and helping students learn should be about. Because what I was increasingly finding is that for low-income students, at Title I schools in areas like Richmond, East Oakland, and West Oakland, uh, their academic problems, it wasn't an academic issue. That wasn't what was really getting in the way here. Uh, the problem was that unlike affluent kids, right? Affluent kids, right? You're, you know, something bad happens to your brother or your cousin, you know, you, you're allowed to like take some time off from school and process. Affluent kids also have access sometimes like mental health care, right? Um, and these students that I was working with, it was just like one thing after another in their lives. 
And so this challenged my ideas about what pedagogy should be. It opened up my mind. And then the kind, I don't even know how I'm going to play to the unbiased part of this question, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, what I tried to do was get other people to change their minds. So that actually ended up, I had to teach my administrators what was up. Because I had to go and interface with them and tell them, like, no, you don't understand. Hiring more tutors is not going to solve this problem, right? Uh, you don't understand. Like, this, ki this kid's problem is not that he's not good at math. This, problem, this kid's problem is that math is the first period of the day, and he's been moving around from place to place because of housing insecurity. Things which, like, academic administrators at UC Berkeley who come from, like, privileged, affluent situations don't even get. They don't even, like, that notion of housing insecurity where where the mom is, like, living at a motel, right? And then kids going to, like, his cousin's house and then his friend's house, right? Uh, I had to teach my administrators what was really going on, which is kind of weird, right? Because, you know, I'm, sometimes I had to be this white guy trying to convince, like, affluent, educated white people and try to talk about what a young black man in Richmond's experience is like. And I can't fully express that, but maybe I was able to better fully express that to them than I was, than uh, I was better able to express that to them than they were able to get it because they weren't going into these neighborhoods, right? Um, anyhow, so where am I going with this? Um, my thing is about the fact that I sometimes wish I had had less tattoos because, like, I needed to in like influence administrators to change the way that they looked at things. So I was not—I wasn't just like—I was trying to get people who never s understood what it was really, really like to constantly be in fear. I had to get those people to understand and to try to make money for uh, trauma awareness in the schools. Because the, the teachers who were working with these students weren't trauma aware at all, right? So, yeah, I think that. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> you answered it pretty good. Yeah, I think I answered it pretty well. All right. Then uh, the last thing uh, is just that uh, you have to take the time and be brave when speaking to the people who are above you. Mm. Yeah, that's it. So um, I teach at the community college level, and um, there's probably a lot more academic freedom at the community college level than at the, the lower um, you know, elementary and high school level. Um, so that um, protects me somewhat, but there definitely, I do teach in the Tri-Valley area, so Livermore, Pleasanton, Dublin. Um, Tracy is not our service area, but we have a lot of students from Tracy. Um, we do have students from Castro Valley and from all over the Bay Area, but mostly those areas, and it's it's a lot more conservative there than um, it is in Oakland and the rest of the Bay Area. Um, so there are, you know, there are, are always students who are concerned that um, teachers in higher education are liberal, no matter what, <laughs> and that they're going to be graded down for their views. And when that happens, as um, oh, someone at the end mentioned it, um, Sarah, you know, 
in voicing your views, your leftist views or otherwise, on a student is a special is a special is a, is another kind of tyranny. And so, um, one of the things that I do because I don't I believe that being unbiased is I mean obviously it's a total fallacy. Um, I tell the students, especially now that you know them tenure, it's easier. <laughs> um, there's a lot of privilege that comes with, with having tenure, and I understand that. Um, but I do tell my students that I swing very left, hard left in my politics, and I write them a letter, and I post a link to an article that I wrote um, that's very you know lefty, and um, probably most of them don't read it. And then I assure them in this letter that I understand that um, they are in a, being educated in America, an institution that cares more about grades and that has gotten us all nutted up about points and grades than actual learning. And I assure them that I would never consciously grade them down for their views, even if they're opposite of mine. That, you know, it's an English class and we're looking at argumentation and convincibility, um, which is, you know, can be subjective, right? And so then I also write on my syllabus in bold font and, you know, caps, always question authority and if you don't agree with your grade. Um, I try very hard to justify it in the comments, but you can always come to my office hours. And the students do, they'll come and they'll say like, I really think that you graded me too hard on this. Sometimes it's about the views, sometimes it's just because they think I graded too hard. And I was like, I look at it again, I'm like, you're right, I've lost, that was probably like the last, second to last paper and I had lost complete objectivity. I was tired and you deserve a better grade. And then I'll give it to them. <laughs> or it's a shitty paper. <laughs> that happens too. I sometimes say, you know, I think it's gonna stay the same grade. And all these things that I wrote on there are why. Um, but one of the things that, you know, when, when I teach literature and English, you know, all the, all the Englishes and all the, um, the creative writing as well, but I teach literature. And when you teach literature, of course, you know you're doing argumentation. The best, not um, literary analysis, the best literary analysis, the best, most fresh, interesting uh, main ideas for an essay are filtered through your lived experience. And as soon as you can not just tell the students that, but actually teach them how to do that, um, then they don't care if you're biased or not because they understand that there are ways to write about their lived experience in their essays without even calling it out. In my class, they can call it out. They can use I. I don't care. I don't count them down for that. Um, but the thing that I love about literary analysis is, is just that, that you have to, in order to find the nugget, to find the tesoro, as I like to tell them, in the in the analysis, in your own analysis, is that you write from your lived experience. And that actually goes back to something else I said, which is that we're all netted up about grades and points. Well, if the student learns to use their lived experience to analyze a text, they're gonna be a lot more interested in it and school is gonna be meaningful and they're gonna care about the ideas and maybe less about the grades, but actually maybe they'll actually get a better grade because they're not just going on the internet to find an idea. Um, so, you know, I think just to sum up, I always encourage them to challenge their grades, challenge authority. I teach them how to challenge authority and with their other teachers. Um, I tell them, if your teachers are not going over the quizzes or the tests in class, you need to ask, raise your hand and politely ask them to go over the test because all teachers write bad questions. At least there's <laughs> at least one bad question on every test. 
Um, and I go over these because I want to make sure to catch it and that you catch it and then you make sure the math is correct because, you know, I could be weak on that sometimes. And then I just tell them I, that, that, I'm, that I don't believe that it's that possible to be unbiased and I tell them that I'm, that I'm a lefty. And then I do this other thing in class a lot where um, when we're, sometimes we do talk about factual things. I'll say this is a fact and I'll say this is my personal opinion. Yeah. Or I'm gonna go off on a rant right now based on my personal opinion. So I really, I mean, I don't. Sometimes I just go on off on a rant. I forget to say it. But and then I'll, hopefully I remember. But I usually do try very hard to make it very clear to them. Like I want you to understand that I'm gonna tell you something right now, and this is based on my personal opinion. And this is not fact. We have just moved over from us talking about the text to me talking about my personal opinion. And I do teach in Puente, which is um, it focuses on uh, Latino students, Latinx students. Uh, but anyone is welcome, but we have a predominantly Latinx or person of color um, student body in that class, and it's a very comfortable space for me, it's a very safe space, but I don't just teach in my thing. So um, I'm coming from an elementary school uh, experience. I was an elementary school teacher for over 20 years, and I worked mostly with Title I kids. Thank you for explaining that. <laughs> um, I, learned, I worked with English language learners from both uh, the United States, Mexico, and Central America. And um, at a certain point, I was getting a lot of Central American kids, and I wanted to know more about their experiences. So I talked to a professor of mine who had assigned the book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And, um, and I asked if, if you know, he would support me in doing an independent study and going to Nicaragua to uh, volunteer for their literacy campaign. Um, as Ruth mentioned earlier, there was a really high rate of illiteracy in Nicaragua um, right before the Sandinistas took power. And uh, they, had, they had asked Paulo Freire to help them design a literacy campaign, which had had tremendous success and it had like uh, just blown away like the world basically they were getting all these like awards for their work so I wanted to see why they were getting all these awards and my little elementary school where I was like spending long hours working with these kids and you know I'm bilingual so I felt like I'm really like scaffolding for them and really help why isn't it working as well as I as it should so I went to Nicaragua, I volunteered on some liter literacy campaigns, mm -hmm. and what I realized is that we are doing it completely backwards. We mm -hmm. are starting with like abstract concepts, explain, you know, showing kids a bunch of symbols, 26 letters, or you know, if you want, if you count the upper and lower case, you know, 52 letters, and you're asking them to learn to make sounds that go with these abstract symbols and then to put them together and then to form words and then to like and then finally to arrive at a word that they know the meaning of and my experience with the Sandinistas were that what they were doing was they would start with a concept and then they would pick a word and then they would break down the word and then after that you know and they would discuss like why how does this concept apply to your life is it relevant is it true so they would start with critical thinking you know and then figure out like, well, how did we get to this? How do we get to this word? What does this word mean to you? What does like revolution mean to you? What does agrarian reform mean to you? And how does it affect you? And this was, um, 
And as much as it might sound like, you know, everybody was on board, there were people that were even in Nicaragua that had privilege and that felt that they disagreed with, um, with what was happening uh, in their government. And I personally remember being at one of these, um, these literacy campaign um, uh, events where the, um, the person said, I don't agree with agrarian reform. And this is how they took my land and they gave it, gave it to everybody. Now anybody can go on there. And, and um, there was real discussion. And the focus was on dialogue and on lived experience and on validating each person's reality and figuring out how to come to, uh, to understand each other and to build, to build that as your basis for learning to read and learning the power of words and learning the power of being able to express yourself and share your ideas with others was felt like this is truly revolutionary. Um, and I think the, the, the thing that I question now is I, I agree with you that like we all come with um, lived experiences. We always come with that. We can't be completely neutral, but how do we get our information? How do we get information that we feel is is true like so like today such a big problem right where like you know I know that I have like I never watch Fox News I just turn it off you know I never watch like the other side but I feel like it's really important that I learn how to have dialogue with people who disagree with me and I feel like I can when they come at me with an open mind and when they're listening to me and it feels like a two-way street where there's respect and then you can find like oh I see why you feel that way I can understand your point of view. I can understand your fears from your experience. You know, a brown person attacked you and now you hate all brown people. Let's talk about that, you know? Or, you know, as is more common in my group of friends, like policemen <laughs> attacked you and now you're afraid of the police. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that from your reality, bringing, bringing it in, but at the same time, where there's a feeling of respect that goes both ways. Um, so for me, what it looks like to be, uh, I'm just going to try to focus with the, the question, um, practice-wise to be an openly radical teacher in the classroom. Um, so like Michelle, I also teach um, English at a community college in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And for, so I have a syllabus that, you know, I, I get new students every um, semester. And so what it looks like me is right out the gate on day one, um, it looks like practice-wise like my syllabus because I have very carefully crafted sections of the syllabus not to focus on here's what you have to do to get this certain grade, here's you know the requirements. And instead I make it a document of inclusion and openness that sets a tone for trust and mutual respect. And the specifics of that um, are, so for example, um, there's a section about how, I, I'm basically describing to my students, hey, I attended a conference and I became a certified undocu ally, which means that, you know, um, as if you are an undocumented student, you are welcome in this class because I believe that everybody has an equal right to education. And it doesn't matter to me, well, that's not true that it doesn't matter to me what your status is, because if you um, are a student concerned about your status, meaning that it might affect your ability to come to class, 
well then I will work with you um, and not count it as an absence if, if you have to do something different and more than another student has to do to stay in the classroom and be successful. So that's the first way um, that I'm very, um, I guess, openly radical in the class without saying like, hi, I'm your teacher and I'm a radical, you know, because that would be <laughs> super cheesy and embarrassing for everybody. Um, so in addition to that section about, um, you know, being an undocu ally, because a lot of students in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico do um, experience, well, they're DACA recipients, for example, and if they're not, then somebody in their family is affected by uh, immigration status. Um, Another section that I have on my syllabus is that I'm safe zone certified and at my community college in at Central New Mexico Community College that means that we have a, a Q uh, you know CNM organization Q standing for queer and that I am safe zone certified and so I put in the syllabus again everybody no matter who you are is welcome in my classroom um, you know, I, I have a, a blurb about if you have, you know, question, if you're questioning gender and just need somebody to talk to, I'm a certified person to be able to talk to in a safe, you know, uh, manner in my, in my office. I can help you, um, you know, find resources. Um, uh, I have sections in my uh, syllabus about resources. Food security issues are very real for the majority of any student, no matter where we are in the country. Um, I. Um, have resources listed about when the the CNM food banks are going to be happening. Um, I have uh, different sections um, about classroom civility, and I know it sounds awfully cheesy, like here's the classroom rules. But um, I take a break from just listing rules, and I make eye contact with all of my students, and I say, a hundred percent of us in this classroom no matter your you know, ethnicity or you know, your first language or your orientation sexually or gender, um, no matter your immigration status, every single person in the classroom, including myself, has experienced discrimination of some kind at some point in your life. And so because all of us knows what that feels like, that means that you're not going to discriminate against anybody else in this classroom, that everybody is welcome and, and I kind of give that, it's the only time I'm stern, and I was like, do I make myself clear? And it's like the whole class is like, yes. <laughs> like I understand that I'm not gonna be giving anybody a hard time, and I promise them that if there is any kind of sexual harassment or discriminatory language that I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, might not be, ping, uh, be picking up on, that they can come to me confidentially, and I will, nip that in the bud and take care of it one-on-one -on -one, privately respectfully with you know the, the, the other student who it might be happening with um, so that's the the first way that I um, practice wise am openly radical just by creating that um, classroom of inclusion and um, let's see so I don't really have to tell my students what my beliefs are because I show them and for an English instructor, that's kind of what you want your students to do anyway in their papers. So I'm, I'm modeling to them, I'm showing them <clears throat> what it means um, to be you know, mutual or respectful, to engage in cooperation. Um, I always bring food into my classes. Um, I don't try to oppress students' you know, needs for you know, hydrating and, and staying nourished. Um, so I, I bring snacks especially if I know students are struggling <clears throat> because you can't think if you're hungry 
And so I make food um, security uh, present in my classroom. Um, all of my teaching pedagogy is pretty much uh, informed by my knowledge of brain-based learning, too. So it's not just because I identify as a political radical. It's because I also know that if there's a student in my class who is not feeling safe and secure and like they're not welcome in the classroom, that then all of their energy is going to go into protecting themselves, right? And, and that um, they're gonna be anxious about imposter syndrome or something else that's making them not feel um, comfortable and like they belong. And so I really go out of my way to foster that sense of a safe space because then more learning can happen. The brain has to feel safe um, so we're not in the fight or flight you know, response, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the brain response um, to protecting oneself. And so if I can help to remove that in any way I can, I do it simply because then more learning can take place. Um, and I reemphasize how, you know, you as a student don't have the right to infringe upon another student's right to learn. And if you're giving them a hard time, you're interrupting them and their ability to learn and, and to help meet their individual goals in the classroom. Um, and like some of my other co-panelists here, I also don't pretend to be unbiased. Um, and I tell my students that, well, and, and as an English instructor, um, when I'm helping them uh, detect bias in online sources of information, um, uh, I say, when I'm trying to help them detect bias in online sources of information, um, I say that's because no human being is without bias. So it's just absolutely ludicrous to assume that an instructor who is a human, I know a lot of students don't see us that way, <laughs> especially in the younger grades, um, but everybody carries with them bias, and bias is inherently not a bad thing. Right. It's simply a thing that we all have, like we have on clothes. We have layers of clothes on like we have layers of bias. And we can take this layer of bias on and try on a different one as we're you know, aging and, and learning new things. And so um, it doesn't exist, we all have it, and I teach them how to recognize it. Um, and I, uh, like Michelle said, I also, if I do get my bias accidentally front and center in some kind of topic that we're talking about, I do, <clears throat> excuse me, try to reel myself in and catch it and I'll own it and I'll say, oh, that was me giving my opinion. And I'm very <laughs> careful about teaching my students that, hey, what I'm telling you right now is opinion. This is my bias. Um, and then when it's a fact that I'm um, sharing, then I, I announce it as that. I, I label it too. I say, this is actually something that you can look up and verify to find out if I'm telling the truth or not. And I invite them to do that. Um, so those are just a few of the ways that I um, practice <coughs> wise and openly radical in my classroom. So. Uh, I'm Miriam Kleinstahl and I teach at Berkeley High School. And um, it's my 26th year, Ooh, pretty close to retirement. Um, and, uh, and about uh, 13 years ago, um, I got a grant through the Gates Foundation to create a small school within Berkeley High um, to address the equity gap. Um, Berkeley High 
um, is kind of the best and worst place ever. Um, it has the largest achievement gap in the country. Um, there's reasons for that. Mainly, um, white students tend to outperform white students in the state. It's a lot of kids of Cal professors and a lot of kids with privilege, um, many privileges. <laughs> and then, um, and then uh, the schools, probably 70% students of color. Um, and our black students um, tend to, there's not a lot of middle class black students tend to go to private school because of the reputation of this large achievement gap. So it is the only high school in the city, so every kid goes there. And so it's, it's, a very, it's probably one of the most diverse schools in the country as well. Um, and so, uh, so I had opportunity to create a school um, with the specific goal of addressing this equity or opportunity gap at the high school. And, um, and I'm an artist, so um, Gate, the Gates Foundation was funding thematic schools at the time. And so um, I got to create like basically a school I wanted to teach in, which is a visual performing arts school. Um, and so we have kids that uh, have some sort of inclination towards the arts. And it's a really funny mix of kids, um, John Mink can attest to, um, because because um, I have visual arts kids that are kind of like the kids that are always writing all over their papers and are kind of quiet and shy and nervous, and then performing arts kids that come in singing and dancing. <laughs> and then um, we have a huge, amount of autistic kids, um, probably 50% of our kids are trans or queer. Um, so it's, there's a lot of intersectional um, identities happening. And so we spend a lot of time um, giving students space um, to express what they need to express. Because you can't learn until you give um, your students a voice and, and a lot of them just need to be heard, even if it's in little ways. So a, lot, a big part of our curriculum, especially when we get new students in, in 10th grade or 10 through 12, um, like creating just community days where, um, where it's just about them and giving them, making, giving a structure for them to express themselves. Um, and you know, and, and we do have a core belief that our students are artists and academics and that they can succeed academically. And the majority of them have not had that academic success um, previously for all the reasons that um, people have expressed already. Um, so we take students on overnight retreats in the Marin Headlands. This grant allows us to do things like that to give opportunity to low-income kids that went maybe be able to go overnight in Marin <laughs> um, and you know uh, create lessons around personalization and letting um, getting to know our students and unlike you where you get different students every semester I get students for three years so you really build relationships and once and they really become a strong community and um, I see a lot of punks in here, and you know the, the power of that, of like working with a group of people over a long period of time, um, you can do some pretty great things. And um, so our, 
my whole role as a teacher, I feel, has been to create opportunities for students. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the stuff that I learned from punk, so it's like, you know, um, uh, Kim McGee, who worked at the coffee shop and let us all go make zines, mm -hmm. like, I'll write grants and get laser cutters or like, you know, um, have <laughs> screen printing available so they can make shirts for their bands. You know, like all of that kind of stuff that we grew up doing, mm -hmm. figuring out on our own, I try to like um, give that to our students. And um, also they do internships. All of our seniors go, go only go to school four days a week and do an internship one day a week. And so helping them with like making a resume, doing a job interview, um, finding, placements for, um, we have 60 kids per grade level, um, I feel is setting our students up for, you know, finding success in the future. And they're all, you know, it's, um, they're all the total freaks of the school because they gravitated towards the art school. And I feel like they, they need skills. Um, they need academic skills. They need to know how, how to write and how to do math and how to um, communicate. Uh, to, to be successful out in the world because they have all of these strikes against them. And so um, that's all. It's an excellent um, segue into the yeah. next question, in fact, as well. And in the spirit of the next question. Um, oh, I forgot to even answer your question. <laughs> no. <laughs> Is the one, the one autonomy that we do have um, at Berkeley High, at least, is around um, curriculum. And so um, I have never felt constrained. And so we, we try to do school in a different way because the way that most of us in this room went through school totally sucked, right? Yeah. It's terrible. And so um, just for example, we do um, interdisciplinary projects. So like in anatomy, when they're learning about respiratory health, we do like a big project in English history, art, science, um, where they'll look at West Oakland, Richmond, Fresno, and why are there high incidents of respiratory health there? So all the freeways and shipping in West Oakland, the oil refinery in Richmond, um, pesticides and trucking through Fresno. And, and so they'll like learn about that in, in history. And then in English, they write letters to um, Chevron and like various <laughs> places um, as concerned citizens and then um, they study in science respiratory health and then that all of those big projects culminate in a performance or um, a art exhibition and so we do huge month-long projects like that twice a year in all grade levels on topics that are relevant <laughs> to students and and don't do classes as like you sit for an hour then you go to another class and sit for an hour we like work on the project all day long and sometimes it's art all day long sometimes it's doing the research into you know Richmond and the oil refinery and help you know like so it's we just kind of break up the bells and cells and how schools normally done and do it differently too and also take kids out a lot like get out of school and take them we're in the Bay Area, so there's so many resources and free museums and performances and like so much to do that it, you, you have to like just jump on BART and go somewhere sometimes. They need that. Yeah, <laughs> sure, we're very lucky in that sense. Um, 
And again, like as we were saying shortly before this too, tying into uh, the second question, which is, uh, again, which is excellent, an excellent kind of se uh, segue in what you're saying. We're another focus of this book and another focus of these uh, brilliant minds who have been part of writing it. Um, also, I will note, as if it's not already incredibly obvious, represent a really broad spectrum of, um, of really radical thought. And this is not a book that, and, a, and a type of uh, thinking that's oriented around one very specific definition of radicalism, but we have a broad spectrum here, and it's important for us as radicals and as people who are trying to make radical change within society, as educators are doing by definition, to find these commonalities and these points in which we can connect and where we really find resonance with each other to radically reinvent the, the systems by which we live in, if not tear them down entirely and then rebuild them. Mm -hmm. um, and tying into that, much in, uh, in the history of music, one of the movements that actually aimed to do that, of course, that many of you are familiar with, was the idea was punk rock, which took pop and rock and kind of broke it down to its bare bones and uh, came right out the gate with very different wings within it. There's always been, since the beginning of punk, a reactionary wing that was much more oriented towards just saying, oh, all, all, all that extra poofy stuff is BS. And uh, they would, you know, do things like wear swastikas to shock, um, oftentimes have, you know, using kind of what today would be called edgelord sort of language and, and ideas to push which would have sometimes ended up segueing into real nasty, real-world political agendas like the rock against communism that happened in the early 80s. And I'm saying this stuff first because I think it's important as punks and as educators to acknowledge the aspects of our history that were also very um, negative and reactionary and still tie into stuff that goes into the present. But there along with that wing has always been a radical forward-thinking side of punk rock that uh, has aimed to redefine music and tie it in uh, in a continuation of radical politics and intellectual traditions that had started, um, I mean, really hundreds of years ago, but like became uh, formatted particularly in, in 1968 and in the 1970s into radical new ways of thinking and restructuring thought and society. And so when we're thinking about specifically the politically radical side of punk, um, encapsulated in bands you know, such as Crass and you know they have their own issues at times, but you know bands like such as that who've operated in these in these kinds of spheres, and bands like Alice's, like the Bags, and bands that have, uh, the Minutemen down in Southern California as well. A lot of these bands that have reinvented and, and created new venues in the modern times. Bands like Gloss are a good example. Um, let's think about what some of the contradictions and connections are between politically radical, independent anti-authoritarian subcultures. We don't necessarily have to stick to punk here, right? There's a lot of subcultures that tie into this. Uh, we can include punk rock, underground hip hop, and others. Uh, ones that have music and art it tied into them, as well as intellectual thought and, and radical politics. And the teachers who identify themselves with these subcultures. So in the spirit of being a little bit more punk and breaking down structures here, instead of just doing a row of people talking, let's just have people kind of jump in as they feel is appropriate and feel free to build on each other, look at it as more of a bit of a Socratic, right? You know, using some teachery terms here. Look at this as more of a bit of a Socratic moment. We're gonna do that and the audience gets to weigh in. Yeah, yeah. the audience should absolutely get to weigh in. So let's get a few people talking, have some hands pop up. We don't have to have this be 
hierarchical, a bunch of people talking at you. Let's get this open to people. So why don't we have people, anybody on the panel or in the audience want to start? And let's see how this goes. With a, with a question, well, again, was how, subcultures? Some connections and contradictions between politically radical, independent, anti-authoritarian subcultures, like punk, underground hip-hop, etc., and teachers that identify themselves with these subcultures. So just talk about the connections, about the contradictions. Yeah, Jessica, let's go. Start. I'm a teacher because of punk rock. Okay, great. Honestly, um, when I was in college, and I was like, oh, shit, sometimes I'm, I'm going to have to like get a job to pay off these student loans. <laughs> like, what is the most not sellout job I can think of? <laughs> I'm going to be a teacher, because I'm not going to be helping somebody else make profits. I am literally serving the public in a public institution. <laughs> I am using, you know, state, you know, taxpayer dollars to serve the public back in, in a good way. I believe in the power of education and I really care about my students' dreams and goals. Um, and so, yeah, it, and, and I learned a lot of those values from punk. And so that's why I became a teacher. Yeah, jump in, just jump um, in. Yeah, so, uh, so first of all, because uh, I just want to make sure I have time um, as a part-time faculty member at the Mission Campus of City College, um, it's actually very bittersweet for me to be here right now. Um, City College has a very progressive reputation. Obviously, they, um, they hold this festival. I will not be back here in the spring um, because the budget has been cut by 30%. I have an assignment at another uh, campus, um, and I have health benefits. A lot of us don't. Um, and uh, it's really, it's really upsetting what the Board of Trustees and um, what Chancellor Roca are doing right now. Just in the past month, something like 280 classes, um, and a lot of them non-credit and arts, ceramics, dance, um, have just been cut. Uh, wow. And um, the union is fighting back really hard, and so I would encourage you to go downstairs after this to the AFT 2121 table um, and to the City College table and to sign the two petitions that we have for the Board of Supervisors. Uh, there's also, if you're a San Francisco resident and if you've taken classes here before, we're going to have a speak out uh, at the Board of Trustees meeting at 4 p.m. at the Ocean Campus. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, I'm sorry? Date. The date of uh, Thursday. This Thursday. This and Thursday. The this Thursday. Ninth. The ninth. Yeah. And the I tenth. The tenth. Twelfth? The twelfth. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um and I, I'd be happy to talk to people about that afterwards. Um and then I also just want to say that I had a um Miriam, you know, I went to St. Mary's. Um I uh, I was in and out of private and public schools in Berkeley. I'm pretty sure my cousin is actually in if you're at AHA. Um, That's I, my school. I yeah. made it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. My my cousin is there right now. Um, I was bouncing in and out of schools, um, and I was I went to a private Catholic high school in Berkeley, and I really experienced a lot of duality. Um, I went to a school with the dress code. I wasn't allowed to dye my hair. I wasn't allowed to have piercings. Um, and um, I uh, really had to split those two parts of my identities. I had my graduate professor sitting right here in the front row, and this was like my moment of coming out to her as a punk. Um, and I think that sometimes um, there can be, uh, I have always worried about not being taken seriously as a professional. 
um, for having dyed hair and for having tattoos and for having piercings. Um, and uh, it's been a part of my identity that um, I haven't always wanted to show off professionally. Um, and uh, I think that's just something to consider when we think about semiotics, that um, being able to present ourselves in the world in unconventional ways and still be taken seriously as professionals is often a sign of privilege Absolutely. that not everybody yep. has. Yep. Hey, I totally get you on the duality thing. Um, I've had a lot of trouble reconciling the fact that it was my private high school education that set me up to be able to kick ass a lot of the time and have that kind of confidence and privilege to be out in the open looking like this. Um, and, but at the same time, when I was in school, there was a lot of time I was not bringing my full self to that campus. I could dye my hair, like I could wear whatever makeup I wanted. So like from here up, I was pushing the dress code as hard as I could. But it's been hard to kind of reconcile that privilege and the hell of an education I got out of it. Um, but I was raised by a pair of radical California hippies on Utah Phillips and like Woody Guthrie. So <laughs> protest music is in my blood. Um, and I ended up taking that and taking it into education, and now I'm at least attempting to kick ass on diversity and inclusion in tech. And it's a lot of interesting, conflicting backgrounds and views to have to hold at once. <laughs> so my educational experience was kind of the opposite of hers, right? So I went to an LAUSD high school. Um, and there's like, there is this weird thing where I'm just like, I can connect with my students because as you called it like survivor heavy, <laughs> right? A lot of the people I'm actually looking at Michelle, a lot of people that I knew when I was young, dead. Tomato Duplenty, dead, right? Like my friends died, my friends went to jail. And so I try to use that experience of also like I got into fights a lot, right? And so I try to get use that to connect with the students. But I'm a white dude, I went to really, really like, you know, I went to some fancy schools, right? whatever. Uh, but I try to use that to advocate for my students. But there's this thing, I think, Operation Ivy said, uh, success is conformity to a structured way of life. Can I get a check on that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of my so, favorite songs. Funny, yeah, that's, it was a great line because the problem is getting up the ladder to where you can make change seems to require kind of selling out something at each rung. And that's where I got, I eventually had to peek out because there was no way I was gonna go to the next rung being as problematic as I was with my administrators and talking shit to them. But if you're gonna make change, you gotta be brave. And you can, sometimes you're gonna have to say, I might not, I mean, I might not be you know, I may never be a uh, super superintendent. I may never be a principal, but I'm going to put pressure on people. Right? I want to go back to something that Ruth said about um, adjuncts. So, I, my article in Teacher Resistance is called "Community College is the Punk Rock of Higher Education," <laughs> and it's something that I like totally, totally believe. Yep. But I am not so romantic about the community college system that I don't recognize this one thing that I say in meetings all the time to the chagrin of the administrators, and that is that we subsidize the education of our students on the backs of adjuncts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, 
who we don't pay health insurance to, who we don't pay a living wage to, the majority of English classes or math classes or any other classes in any community college are taught by part-time people. Mm -hmm. There are only so many full-time positions in all schools because this country doesn't value education and only you know, provides a certain amount of funding, a large portion of which is funded through taxpayers' dollars. Um, it's criminal that we subsidize the education of young people on the backs of people who can barely make a living. So I want to take it back to punk rock because I think punk rock is the higher education. <laughs> I feel like I had to actually leave the classroom to feel like I could connect with the parents of those kids that I was teaching and use my voice as a musician to talk about the things that I felt needed changing in society. And I often find that when I see that kind of, um, that break from the, like what I think is really the ideology of punk, which is to be, to have an original voice, to question authority, to have something, to be, to be a force in the world. Um, those are things I learned from punk rock. And if you have a band that wants to get drunk and have fun and play three chord songs, that's great. But that's not how I define punk. If you're not challenging patriarchy, if you're not challenging, if you're not changing the world and forming alliances, then that doesn't feel like punk to me. Yeah. Yep. Jump on in, folks. This is an open conversation. Just jump, jump in. Um, I, th I think like one of the biggest connections and contradictions of, of that is, is basically just also by like looking at the room and who has the ability who to say they ha to have the quote unquote privilege, right? Mm -hmm. What is what is usually accustomed and framed as like punk and punk politics and punk identity, mm -hmm. and just by the look at this room is basically what's always been punk, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. A white center concept that even though it's used right as a form to uh, empower people from very various places right because I am also from Los Angeles and I'm, I'm seeing Alice and my community college as well and they've played and at and seeing how there's a difference of how the politics and relationships build and how in itself like it's that is like is transformative but then in itself like as using that as like kind of like the uh, um, a connection, like a pro, the con in itself comes back to like who has the access of being able to understand and deconstruct like not like just behaviors and attitudes of people that where we can connect in the classroom and like also like understand somebody and not just be dismissive, but at the same time with these narratives of people that some of us grow to be or like punk not because my parents liked it or not because, you know, it was just a cool thing, but it's because we come from these places where alcoholism in itself is a byproduct of where we're at, because of violence in itself is a place that is like, because of machismo is a place that is very much embedded in specific brown communities, right? And that's something that it's still like a big, like I think like, um, like so much of a, a, 
that is I see like the change but also like also a pushback and where where I feel that punk is still kind of like I'm, I'm, I don't I don't want to say struggling but it's trying to create new systems of power and I mean I want to ask like the educators like Allison and, and also uh, Michelle how do you con how do you practice that as in like the, the kids say if you have they come with trauma how do you how do you work with them you know that's something that I, I like also as an educator myself working with second grade students here now like in Longfellow Elementary School in San Francisco you know is this how to understand kids you know by like to, yeah well I I am I feel like I'm very emotionally intelligent, and so I can pick up on subtle cues and you know ask the right questions. And even my son, like, I asked him some personal information recently, and then I got it out of him. And someone said to me, "How did you get that out of him?" And I was like, and he was actually surprised I got it out of him. I was like, I work with young people all day long. I just know how to ask the right questions in a different way to, tr to like get it from you, not to trick you, but to ask you to keep asking ask it in a different way so that you can understand maybe you didn't understand what I was asking before now you understand now um, but I also do a lot of what Jessica does um, you know I post signage and make sure I put things in the syllabus that I um, also an undocu ally um, I do a lot of trainings you know trauma-informed training um, but I, I think one of the main things I do in class that starts this for me is I have the students write me a letter because it's community college so they, they, they're writers you know, they kind of write um, their literacy their literacy is you know very developed and um, I have them write me a letter about themselves and um, anything that might be in their way of their studies um, any fears they have about the reading and writing um, any, and then a lot of them right away will reveal I have anxiety or I have a mental illness or I take medication for ADHD or my parents are divorced or I have to work a lot or I take care of my siblings and then I, I make a chart I put it in like a table so I can look at it really quick and then when I approach the student I try really hard if I know I'm gonna meet with them or if I'm feeling annoyed with a student I'll look at my chart and I'll be like oh yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that response that you feel like having right now is not the right response for this student mm -hmm. based on what I, I, I know about them. So that's one way. Um, I'm going to go back to, to dialogue again because my experience, I remember like sitting with a group of kindergartners and um, one little girl raised her hand and she said, Maestra, yo soy mojada, which means I'm a, I'm a teacher, I'm a wetback. And I thought about it and I said, like, oh, my father was also Mojado, you know, and I'm like, you know, and then somebody else said, I am too, and my dad is too, or my mom is too. And then this one little kid, like, um, started crying and saying that his cousin was being held by a coyote, and they were trying to raise the money to release him. And these are like five-year-old kids, and they started talking to him, like, don't worry, it's going to be okay, oh. we're with, you know, like, so it wasn't really um, about so much about the teacher, but it was about creating a space where everybody felt like they was were being heard, and everybody felt like they were a community, and they were responsible for this yeah. individual's well-being. Mm -hmm. So it was beautiful to see the kids support each other. You know? 
I was just saying, I just want to add a little thing when I was thinking about uh, what Michelle was saying about creating a chart for the kids and thinking about the relative privilege in different places. In the district that I'm at now, um, there's a lot of what they call 504 plans, which are not quite individualized education plans, but they're, I'm sure, a teacher, you probably written them a little bit, there, but they're um, basically modified instruction based on how students, on certain issues that students might have that might not uh, quote unquote rise to the level of an IEP of an individualized education plan. And they're in my, in the district I'm in, which is relatively privileged now, in stark contrast to the adult school teaching I was doing before, um, <coughs> there are dozens of these. So I have those charts made for me by, by a very active and activist counseling staff and, and active parenting and active teaching staff and lots of funding. And it really speaks to the Despair, stark disparities within different schools. What kind of what kind of structures are built to be able to help kids to be able to give the things that they need through individualized help as they might need to? And it, I, it really that really just kind of struck that home to me. How you do that in the classroom, and that, that's something that every teacher should do. But wow, we have a lot of other places, teachers, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I have a student assistant in yeah, the Puente program who helps with that. I so I should say that like she made the chart. I. So getting mental, you're talking about like getting mental health help for a student who's traumatized, but the parent, for example, doesn't want that to happen because they think of going to a therapist as being like only, only like crazy people. Well, yes, but to more or lesser extent, it's just even getting like an IP or just a test. Like a oh, yeah. Yeah, literally, yeah, literally just a parent like just allowing their child to take the test. Uh -huh. yeah. 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 I, you know, like how would, if y'all have come across it, how, how have y'all dealt with that? I had a situation kind of like that with a student I worked with in the same, Lindsay and I used to work with the same educational outreach program, and I had a kid who very, I, I have ADHD myself, and so I'm very familiar with the symptoms, and this kid very, very, very clearly had ADHD, but he was bright enough that he had not fallen to the point of academic underachievement to force Oakland Unified to get him tested. Um, he had been just barely scraping by, and his parents could neither afford nor were willing to get him assessed outside of the school district. And he would have had to fail harder for the school district to force the issue. <coughs> right. Um, so I ended up just sitting him down and saying, hey, I'm not a psychiatrist, I can't diagnose you, but based on my own experience and my symptoms, what I know about it, I suspect this might be what's going on. Once you're an adult in college, you can get it checked out yourself, but here are a whole bunch of tricks and techniques that I've used to help get myself on track even without medication to make mm -hmm. studying easier. Because there was, there was literally nothing else I could do, but that was enough to start turning things around for him and at least make him feel like he had something to <laughs> over it. Uh, I think um, 
working with a group of teachers around the student population is so ideal. So, um, you know, we only have 60 kids per grade level, and so our grade level teachers can meet a couple times a week, and we really focus on student support. And so whether there's an IEP or a 504, doesn't matter. It matters like if someone's having success with a student that's struggling, they can share that with the other teachers that have that student. And I think um, you can bypass those systems and just look at who your students are and try to assess their needs the best you can. And, um, and if you figure out something about that student, then contact the teacher they have the next year and say, hey, this really worked with that kid. Yeah. So that can follow yeah. them. Like, do it, do it yourself, you know? When I hear 504, I almost cringe because that's a way that, that white parents have gamed the system, at least yeah. in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, mm -hmm. to like, actually get their kid more times on tests than, mm -hmm. and they don't need it. Oh, sound familiar. Just yeah. like, it, it's how white supremacy works, right? Like, that's how I see 504s. Yeah, it's, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's, it's a strange like, type of accommodation. It actually really sucks. It's not being used for kids that really need them. Wow. Yeah. I want to go back to an earlier point that you made, too, that I thought was, you know, very important related to I think like the romantic qualities that we associate with punk when it comes to like access and when it comes when it comes to I should say the relationship between like romantic utopian visions of punk and then what it looks like in practice mm -hmm. and how punk tends to be a space that you know reinforces um, aspects of dominant culture in the sense that it continues to recenter whiteness it continues to recenter cis men um, and thinking about how punk looks like that in practice, even though we have these like, you know, oh, it's like this space of like togetherness and like, you know, it's community and stuff. But then it's like, who has access to like get the instruments to like, you know, oh. learn how to, you know, start a band and whatnot. And I think that, that there's a direct parallel between that and what it looks like to, I think, challenge hierarchy in the classroom because we can walk into a classroom being like, this is gonna be like a non-horizontal space, or like a horizontal <laughs> space land, you know, it's gonna be like something that's like very utopian and um, non-hierarchical, but that's always, like if, if we move into it not thinking about who's going to then take, take up the most space? How are we going to like lay ground rules for people stepping into a conversation and stepping back because people that tend to have a lot of privilege feel empowered to speak in a lot of contexts, um, feel empowered to take up space. Um, so I think recognizing how people's different locations to systemic power, it impacts us in punk and it impacts you know people in the classroom too. It, it makes me think actually of one of the stories in the book, which is an interview with uh, Murad Tamini, who is a uh, teacher on the West Bank, who's a Palestinian teacher in the West Bank. And uh, Tamini uh, is affiliated with punk. He's, a, he's, he's, a punk, he's into punk. It's like, and as with many Palestinians in the occupied territories, including some of the students, would absolutely love to be able to play punk music in the way that people traditionally view it as a guitar, drums, bass kind of combination <laughs> thing. But none of those people have access to this equipment. None of those people have access to a place where they can do that. So honestly, a lot of the punk that's come out of that uh, what would be, I would consider to be punk, would be a lot of more harsh noise and uh, stuff that people are making on their computers, some hip hop, some stuff that's really uh, 
radical, politically radical, musically radical, and transgressive deconstructionist, but it's not being created with traditional instruments, and it's being created on individual uh, laptops and small rigs at home. And the uh, interesting thing is that when there was the big argument of actual rock and roll, but there was a talk about um, being part of the BDS movement with regard to it and like taking that as part of maximum rock and roll. Part of the argument was talking about like, well, why don't we, we need to increase representation and have more people from the West Bank and from the, those, those areas that are so heavily impacted have more punk bands from there being represented rather than just Israeli punk bands. And it was, I was like, well, there are no punk bands. It's like, yes, but why don't we open the definition of what punk is? Because there's some very specific definitions tied into that within certain institutions. And it did start to open up. And people started to open about that. But it took a long time. And so these structures, like you're saying, they can be very deeply embedded, right? And they're tied into other things that can be hard to deconstruct for some people involved in it. So yeah, sorry, just a little side note on this in the book. I want to. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I, I want to go back to the DIY thing because I just thought kind of something. Like when I was teaching, you know, I often bought my own stuff, like my own Like I made sometimes made my own photocopies. I bought books, right? And I didn't have a lot of institutional support from my administration. And I did have that like punk idea of like, you know, if, if my administration's not going to do it for me. I'll do it myself. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then I had this thought, well, if teachers keep on doing that, then when are we going to exactly. actually get the yeah. administration exactly. to actually do it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, in the, I know that LAUSD, there's a, a teacher's union, but as we, like, with adjuncts, like, like <laughs> schools find ways to go and move around the union, right? And so this is actually more of a question. Like, if we keep on doing it ourselves, then how are we going to get like right. the administration to start like supporting us? Right. Yeah. Uh, the last few minutes of this is. I mean, oh yeah, go ahead. Who's gonna, I was going to yeah, say, as a full-time instructor's tenure, and I always make sure to tell my department and my college, never, ever nominate me for an award that's based on me working outside of forty-hour work week. That's working for free. I will not accept such an award yep. because I will not perpetuate the teacher martyr, the teacher, mm -hmm. the good teacher who buys all the supplies because if we keep doing that, it's, yeah. it will never end, as yeah. you say. Well, and if I can just yeah. uh, build up that, I mean, again, thinking about privilege, um, I mean, I think one of the big issues, and as, as someone that grew up, I grew up in Berkeley um, with uh, working class white parents who were who were like counterculture intellectuals um but i i went through public schools but with the the white privilege of having having an educated stay-at-home mom um you gotta pay teachers more man like there's a reason yeah. that um you i mean like again i'm just gonna say you know like there's a single there there are two latinx teachers in the entire city college one of them is what? an esl yeah yeah, or tenure. Oh. Excuse me. I think there. I think it's slightly more than that. There are two. There are two tenure lieutenant uh, teachers. There's one in the ESL department. Um, yeah, and um, it's because of the people that have the privilege to go into a low-paying profession and find it glamorous. Um, often come from middle-class backgrounds um, because people who come from immigrant backgrounds don't have the luxury of choosing a job that is virtuous. I would um, also argue, sorry to interject, please, but yeah. I would also argue that we are not hired 
We are not yeah. seen as authority figures. Mm -hmm. We are not seen as intellectual. We are not, I mean, the number of people who ask me if I teach ESL and never assume mm -hmm. that I teach English literature mm -hmm. is insane. It's like punch people in the, want to punch people <laughs> in the face. Yeah. <laughs> Um, does anybody have any specific questions for specific panelists as we go into the last few minutes of this panel? Anybody have any specific questions for specific panelists? <laughs> you want to know anything interesting? Thank you. There's one right there. Sure. Mr. Alice, you said you went to Nicaragua and uh, you found that the people there were teaching people language or literacy in a different way. Were you able to come back to the U.S.? And how did you integrate that into what you I was able to do it, but I still had to do some of the things that kept me employed. So I still had to give <laughs> tests, and I still had to have results. Um, but then I also was teaching at a time when I could, um, I could kind of do what I wanted to do, and uh, so I felt like I, I had gained the trust of my, um, my administrators the people that were directly above me and um, they had come they'd come to my classroom they'd seen what I was doing and they were supportive but that's not always the case mm -hmm. I also you know I feel like I spent a lot of time after punk like after after my initial uh, experiences with punk in the in the late 70s and when I started teaching I really thought like I can't let people see me as a punk. So I spent a lot of time in costume. Mm -hmm. You know, full on costume. To be able to um, gain people's trust, to speak the language that mirrored their <laughs> language, their body language, their clothing, so that they had a little bit more confidence in me. I think. Uh, in the end, I wouldn't do it the same way, but um, because I think people do need to see who we really are. But I did use that as a way to gain um, some freedom in the classroom. So, folks, thank you so much. I think we're at the last minute here. Thank you so much for the wonderful panel. Everybody involved. Everybody, thank you so much.